Well, it is good to see everyone today. If you have your Bibles, would you um, open to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, and we're going to refer to that chapter as we talk about the Good Samaritan. But as I like to do before we uh, get into God's Word, would you bow with me in a word of prayer and let's ask God to prepare us for the hearing of God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, as always, when we come before your word, we pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts, uh, prepare our minds, and Lord, most of all, prepare our lives. We pray that we would grant you all the room as your spirit would have his way here among us. We believe with all of our hearts in the power and truth of your word. And we pray that your spirit would change us in the moment. May we dare to hear your word and embrace it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, as preachers go, uh, when we hear a good sermon, once in a while we go, wow, that is a really good sermon. I'm going to have to ask permission if we can use that sermon one day. Because, you know what, once in a while you hear a sermon that is so impactful uh, that you just want to share it with people. You don't want to hoard it to yourself. You want to let everyone know, you got to hear this sermon. And today, I want to give credit where credit is due. Today's sermon is based on a sermon that that my preaching professor, Dr. Haddon Robinson, preached uh, by the same title, The Anatomy of of a muggy. So we can thank Dr. Haddon Robinson for this message today. If uh, someone were to ask you what God requires of people in relation to him, I wonder what you'd answer. Some of you would probably answer in the words of Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And of course, you'd be right. Second question, though, uh, what does God require of people in relation to their neighbor? You probably answer even more rapidly that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the New Testament would be in hearty agreement. Paul said that love is the fulfillment of the law and that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And when he wrote to the congregation in Rome, he told them to owe no man anything except to love one another. But if I could make the questions a little bit more personal. Do you love God? It may be a little bit more difficult. Uh, I'd imagine you think about it and answer uh, deep down inside, yes, I think I do love God. And on the surface, at least, there's little that I can do to prove you wrong. Uh, Your love for God is an intensely uh, personal thing, something known to Him, something known to you. But if I was to ask you a fourth question, do you love your neighbor? I think that could be the most difficult question of all. You'd say, well, that depends. Who is my neighbor? Well, do you mean the people that live uh, in my block, in my neighborhood? In, uh, or do you mean the people that live in Colony or Latham or, or Clifton Park or Saratoga Springs or East Greenbush? Well, Why stop at the town limits? Uh, How about all of upstate New York, you say? And why not all of New York State? 
And why stop at the, uh, state, the state lines? You can take all the folks in the Northeast. You might say to me, well, Pastor, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I can answer your question because uh, I'm not really sure who my neighbor is. You know, it's interesting that essentially that same conversation uh, comes to us out of the pages of the scriptures. In Luke chapter 10, a young lawyer, a theologian, comes to question Jesus. Uh, He isn't really in earnest, uh, but he comes to increase his reputation as a scholar at at the expense of a dull Galilean peasant. He wants to sharpen his intellect on the razor strap of argument. So he has this whole argument uh, mapped out in his notebook at home. He knows how he'll begin and how Jesus will answer and how he'll reply. And in his mind, at least, it won't be long until he has uh, Jesus in a somewhat intellectual checkmate. He begins a conversation with uh, one of the greatest questions that men and women have ever faced. 10,000 philosophies lay strewn along its path. He says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I tell you, I have to admire Jesus' restraint here. Uh, Jesus doesn't say to him, now that's a dumb question. Everyone knows that the nature of an inheritance is that you do nothing for it. Somebody gives it to you, and then they die, and, and all you have to do is receive it. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, um, You're a lawyer. You know the Old Testament law. What do you think it teaches? I think this man was deeply discouraged discouraged by Jesus' response. Here he had come, hoping for a theological dialogue, and, and Jesus was treating him like a student in his first theological class. I mean, just about anybody who had grown up in the midst of the people of God knew the answer to that question. So he blurted out, you shall love the Lord God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, that's good, that's a good answer. You keep doing that, and you will live. And suddenly, this lawyer, he recognized he had sprung his own trap. He was like a schoolboy who was allowed to make up his own examination, and then he proceeded to flunk it. He didn't have any problem with the first part of the exam. Everybody in town knew how religious he was. It's it's that second part that got under his skin. And about that, he wasn't quite so sure. And so, seeking to justify himself, the text says, he said, Well, who is my neighbor? He wanted a definition of terms. We can empathize with that, can't we? How many times do we come face to face with the clear requirements of Scripture? And instead of obeying it, uh, what we do is get a discussion group started. Because if we can talk about it long enough, in just the right way, instead of bending our lives to fit the Scriptures, we can turn the Scriptures a bit to fit our lives. And it was in that spirit he asked the question, Who is my neighbor? When Jesus answered the question, um, he doesn't give him a long theological discourse. He doesn't even tell him that there are several Greek words for love. Instead, he just told him a story. It's one of those stories that lie like a booby trap on the pages of the New Testament. Uh, 
you pick it up and it, it seems almost like a child's toy. You've seen it so many times before and then it has a way of exploding and burying its shrapnel inside your soul. He told him the story of the Good Samaritan. The story of a man going from Jerusalem to Jericho who then uh, met up with muggers. They stripped him, robbed him, beat him up, left him for dead on the side of the road. The story of a priest and a Levite who saw him and passed him by. And then a Samaritan who stopped and lent a hand. And at the end of the story, Jesus said, These three, who was this man's neighbor? And this lawyer, not even wanting to talk about Samaritan, said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and keep on doing likewise. Well, from that familiar story, Jesus gets the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? It's important to realize that in answering this question, Jesus took this man out of his world, a world of theology, a world of theory, and took him into another world. A world known to ambulance drivers and police sergeants, people who work in the emergency rooms of hospitals. And it was in that world that he found the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? If we're going to get the answer, then it seems to me that one thing is important, and that's that we have to have the right point of view. You know, it was a German theologian named uh, uh, Helmut Thielicke who said that in studying the stories of Jesus, that the viewpoint is everything. And then to illustrate what he meant, he told of a time when he held his new baby, uh, new baby in his arms and uh, stood in front of a mirror. So when the baby moved, the, the reflection moved. And the, when the baby waved... And then the reflection waved. Then all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in the baby's mind. Hey, wait a minute. That's me. I move and the reflection moves. I wave and the reflection waves. You know, every so often, that happens when we're reading the Bible. It's a black print on a white page, stories of long ago and far away. But every so often, as you're reading the text, the print seems to disappear. And on the pages of the scriptures, you see a reflection of yourself. So the question is, who is my neighbor? And the interpretive question is, whose viewpoint will we take? One point of view we might take is uh, the viewpoint of that man who had been beaten uh, by muggers, left to die on the side of the road. I, I can imagine us going to that man lying there in a pool of blood and saying, uh, uh, pardon me, sir, uh, we're doing a kind of a theological survey, and I wonder from your perspective down there by the side of the road, uh, who would you say your neighbor was? I think if the man could have mumbled a reply, his answer would have been as wide as the world. Just about anybody coming down the road, anybody willing to lend a hand would qualify completely. That's the way it is, isn't it? You and I driving down the road, we forgot our cell phones at home, and our car starts making strange noises. 
and then comes rolling to a stop. We don't have the tools or the skill to, to, to get the thing fixed. And right about that moment, just about anybody coming down the road, coming to a stop, and lending a hand qualifies completely as a neighbor. It's amazing, isn't it? It's when the other guy's car comes to a stop, and we're doing pretty well. We can sit behind the wheel and define neighbor with all of the preciseness of a shyster lawyer. See, from the viewpoint of that man by the side of the road, that's one way of looking at a neighbor. But obviously, the people who occupy center stage in this story is the priest and the Levite. Now, if the poor wretch by the side of the road were to make a a list of neighbors, can I tell you the priest and the Levite would have been at the top of their lists. Tradition says that even before they left their home in the morning, they would recite those verses, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who then would better qualify as neighbors than those who knew those verses? But Jesus said a priest came down the road, and he saw the man and passed by on the other side. You know, it's, it's hard to understand how that could happen. How one human being could see another human being in such desperate need and do absolutely nothing to help him. Certainly doesn't sound like our kind of folks. Not the people in our community. Sounds a lot like the people in a big city. Like where I grew up, New York. You know, when I was young... Uh, growing up in the streets of New York, I remember hearing of a, a story on the news where a woman was uh, just mugged and just beat to just almost half to death on the streets. And nearby, everyone heard her screams and cries for help, and no one did a thing. Not our kind of folks, right? Not like people we know. But if you're thinking that, you're still outside of the story. Because I'm sure that priest had some good sound reasons or reasons that sounded good for doing what he did. Since he was a religious type, I'm sure there were religious reasons. You know, back in the Old Testament, the law said that if a priest touched a dead body, he would become ceremonially defiled. So I could imagine this priest saying to himself, you know, I'd really like to help, but it would just be my luck that this guy would die in my arms. And then I'd have to go through the whole rites of cleansing, and it's an expensive sacrifice. But besides, people might ask of what I'm being cleansed from. It may hurt my testimony. Now, I don't know if he thought that way, uh, but I do know that whether he thought that way or not, we sometimes do. There's been in the Church of Jesus Christ the doctrine which has been labeled the doctrine of separation. The way that thing spells itself out is something like this. We are called by God to live a holy life. There are things that we cannot do, places we ought not go, and activities in which we ought not engage. And there are people 
out in society who do those things and say those things and go to those places. So in the name of holiness, we withdraw from the people on the Jericho Road who need our help. So the second man down the road is a Levite. If the priest was the pastor of the temple, the Levite was kind of like the assistant pastor. He'd take care of the scrolls. Um, he, he kept the operation going, and from time to time, he'd do some ministry. But Jesus said he too came by and, and saw the man, and, and he too went on the other side of the road. You wonder, what went through his head? Maybe he thought, like priest, like Levite. If he didn't have time, I don't have time. Or perhaps he thought, you know, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and I'm going to give my lecture on neighbor love. And there's a couple hundred people waiting up there to hear what I've got to say. So what I'll do is jot this man down on a three-by-five card, and I'll use him as an illustration. And I'll challenge the young people to start a Jericho Road Mission Society, and, and we'll come back here and get this whole thing organized, and we'll be able to have a whole mission to people that are beat up on the Jericho Road. Again, I, I don't know if he thought that way. But I do know whether he thought that way or not. We sometimes do. There's a kind of arithmetic that has been spawned in the accounting rooms of hell. The kind of arithmetic that's always interested in reaching the masses, but somehow never gets down to a man or a woman. The kind of arithmetic that always talks about winning the world for God, but really doesn't think much about winning a neighborhood for God. The kind of arithmetic that somehow makes it valiant to cross oceans, but never really crosses streets. Now the third man down the road was a Samaritan. If the priest and the Levite were at the top of the lists of candidates for neighbors, then the Samaritan was at the bottom of the list. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other with a deep, long-standing hatred. In fact, whenever a Jew talked about a Samaritan, he called them a dog, and everyone knew exactly who was meant. And yet Jesus said, when the Samaritan came down the road, he saw the man, he was filled with pity, got down on the side of the dirt road, cleansed his wounds, bandaged him up, took the man, put him up on his donkey, brought him to the hotel, sat up with him through the night, paid the room rent, and then promised that if anything else was needed, he'd come back and pay for it. When Jesus was through with the story, he said, Now, which of these three do you think was neighbor to this man who was beat up by thugs? The two who knew theology or the one who stopped to help? And the lawyer unwilling to speak Samaritan upon his lips, said, I guess, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and keep on doing likewise. Now from that story, we get the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer is as simple as it is sublime. Jesus is saying, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see, whose need you're in a position to meet. It's as simple and as sublime as that. Your neighbor is, as, is anyone whose need you see, whose need God has put you in a position to meet. 
Now, there are some things we put into neighbor that Jesus obviously excludes. Uh, Your neighbor may be somebody who is unknown. Uh, There's no evidence that this Jew and this Samaritan ever met each other before. But one of the marks of the love of Jesus Christ and his people is that they have gone to other cultures and other countries to reach people that they did not know, but whose needs they were aware of. Maybe your neighbor is unfriendly. The Jews and Samaritans were, uh, were deep and long-standing enemies. You may find your neighbor somebody that just rubs you raw, doesn't appreciate what you do for them, slams the door in your face when you come to visit. A neighbor at times could be very unfriendly. Your neighbor may be unlovely. There's nothing particularly attractive about a, a man lying in a pool of blood by the side of a dirt road. And you may have a neighbor whose lifestyle you don't approve of, whose hairstyle you don't like, whose whole way of operating that just turns you off. Your neighbor may be unlovely. Uh, maybe your neighbor may be unrewarding. There's no evidence that this Jew paid that Samaritan back for what what he had done. Sometimes we reach out to people not for what we can do for them, but what they can do for us. Uh, Attendance is a bit low, and the budget is a bit heavy. We need to get more people in the church to make this all work out. It's very possible to reach out to people because they benefit us, not because we benefit them. But Jesus is saying, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see, whose need you're in a position to meet. And buried in this story, there is some indication of what it might take to be a neighbor. One thing it takes is a willingness to get involved. You have to stop. You have to lend a hand. You have to give time. You know, like most of you, I I have four kids. And like most of you, you know, life is hectic and it's full. And time is the hardest thing to give to people. You have to stop and get involved. It also costs money. This Samaritan laid out two denarii. One denarii was a day's worth of wages. But this Samaritan slid across two coins on the counter. And and assured that if more was required, he'd be back, and he'd pay for it. He gave his time, he gave his money, he got involved with somebody that was unknown, unfriendly, and unlovely, and unrewarding. Because your neighbor is anyone whose need you see, whose need God has put you in a position to meet. But there's a hook in it, isn't there? saying, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see, whose need you're in a position to meet. It's in that little phrase, your neighbor is anyone whose need you see. Because it's clear as you read the text that all three of these men saw the same thing. In fact, it's the same phrase. As the priest came by and saw the man... And passed him by. And as the Levite came and he saw the man and passed him by. And then the Samaritan. And when he came and saw the man and had pity on him. 
it's the same phrase. All three of these men saw a stranger who had been mugged. But in a sense, they didn't really see the same thing. One man uh, may have seen a, a ceremonial defilement, while another man saw us, may have seen a sermon illustration. But it was only one Samaritan who saw his neighbor. Because buried beneath the story is a deeper truth. And it's this. What I am determines what I see. What I am determines what I see. That's just the principle of life. Let's say you and I go to uh, the Modern Museum of Art down in New York City, and we walk uh, upon this painting. It's one of those weird ones you see, you know, and it's just colors everywhere. And you, you, maybe you perhaps will say, wow, that is just beautiful. And I'd be like, are you and I looking at the same thing here? Same picture. The difference is not what's hanging up on the wall. It's in here. It's in here. What you are determines what you see. You know, growing up, uh, we were always challenged to memorize Bible verses. And hopefully some of you are memorizing Bible verses. When I was younger, one of those verses I remember memorizing was 1 John 4.20. Boy, 1 John 4.20, uh, that says, If a man says he loves God and does not love his brother, he's a liar. And I remember thinking to myself, uh, I don't know if I agree with that. What, what does loving God have anything to do with loving uh, a brother? Is there any connection between that? You know, and, and as being a pastor's kid, I remember, I remember my parents sending me over to some kids that I just thought were so really weird. You know, and tell them, you got to be real friendly. you got to love them and, you know, accept them. And I'm going, wow, that, that's going to be really hard. You know, and I remember thinking, what does loving my brother have anything to do with loving God? I, I love God on my side of the street. But as time passed, I think John was on to something. I realized that Christian love is not objective. Christian love is subjective. See, Christian love does not reside in the person out there being loved. Christian love resides inside the person doing the loving. I, you know, I discovered my basic premise was wrong. That it isn't such a simple thing to love God. That by nature, the heart is a rebel. That men and women search for God just as much as a thief searches for a police officer. See, what the New Testament is teaching is that the same love that enables me to love the Father in heaven enables me to love my brother, my neighbor on earth. It's, it's a kind of pious nonsense to talk about loving God whom you've not seen if you don't love your brother whom you do see. You see, that lawyer thought he had God in his pocket. But when he answered as he did, Jesus was raising two questions with him. Well, one of the things he was saying, that it's evident that if you're trying to define your neighbor out of your life, you don't know much about neighbor love. Uh, but also, you've told me something else. 
that you don't know much about loving God. Because the same love that enables you to love the Father in heaven enables you to love your neighbor. What you are determines what you see. And what you see will determine what you do. That's just the fact of life. What you are determines what you see, and what you see will determine what you do. You know, there's a a nursery rhyme that some of us older, can I say that older people may know? Uh, Not as old as the, the nursery rhyme. It's from the 16th century from Tudor England. It says, Pussycat, Pussycat, where have you been? I've been to London to visit the Queen. Pussycat, Pussycat, what did you dare? I frightened a little mouse under her chair. You know, I, I love living here in the United States, and, but it, in the few places that I've traveled abroad, I have to say that London is probably my favorite place to go. Some of you, hopefully some of you have traveled to London. I, I love the history, and I love the pomp and the circumstance and the buildings and this whole idea of queen and royalty. So this cat goes to London, comes home. He's having a slideshow with all of his friends. Been here, been there. His friends say, so did you, go to the, did you go to the palace? Oh, yes, yes, I went to the palace. Security's not so good there. They let, I got in. Uh, did you get into, uh, you know, the, the offices and the rooms? They, oh, yes, 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 yes. So, what did you see when you were there? Wouldn't you know, there was just this awesome little mouse under the queen's chair. Well, why? Because she had a pussycat heart. And if you have a pussycat heart, mice are infinitely more important than queens. What you are determines what you see. And what you see will determine what you do. Well, I guess I'll end where I began. Question is, do you love God? Oh, thank you for your testimony. I appreciate that. I really appreciate you standing up and telling us of your love for God. Yes, thank you. Do you love your neighbor? Because it is indeed a kind of pious nonsense to prattle about about how much we love God whom we've not seen when we're blind to our neighbors whose needs we can see. My neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need God has put me in a position to meet. It's as simple and as serious as that. Next week, when Pastor Rex returns, he's going to kick off something called Grace in Action. We are going to have an opportunity to answer this question. Do you love your neighbor? And we will make aware to every one of you across all the sites in Half Moon, in Greenbush, Saratoga Springs, and Latham. 
the needs of our neighbors. And we will have an opportunity to answer. Do you love your neighbor? Because my neighbor is anyone whose need I see, whose need God has put me in a position to meet. And what you are determines what you see, and what you see will determine what you will do. Again, it is simple and as serious as that. May God be honored by how we embrace this truth as we go forward to make an impact upon our neighbors, upon the Capital District. We have an opportunity in the coming weeks as part of this Do Something series. We're going to challenge every one of you to do something in answering this question. Do you love your neighbor? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so humbled by this opportunity to hear your word and to embrace it. Lord, we don't want to prattle on about how much we love you and yet we ignore our neighbors whose need we clearly see. Lord, would you mobilize your army of saints here in the Capital District in the coming weeks and in the coming months and in the coming years that we may reflect not only our love for you, but your love for all those people on the Capital District that may not know you. May we be your hands and feet. May we live out the truth and power of your scriptures. God, to your glory and to your fame, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.